Dun 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 Rob. Hit record again. What? Hey, I uh as soon as I hit answer it stopped my recording. Weird. Oh, I wonder if mine's still recording. No, mine's still recording. Should we do it again? You know. No, this is fine. <laughs> this is this is great. This is a real solid pod. Mike Rappin, guest of the pod, uh, called in to uh, provide a theory for Josh and his birds, because every time Josh is listening to music or uh, on a chat or whatever, the birds just start chirping like crazy. I don't know. I just figured that's what birds always do, but (laughs) you'll have to listen to that episode if you're interested in that. Um, But anyway, he also mentioned all the episodes that you have, you've been doing with uh, Alex, uh, I've been listening to. Um, where you guys talk about music, and I would very much like to hear a podcast about music. I think that would be cool. And I realized Alex said, oh, I just need a prompt. I mean, just talk about Hans Zimmer for an hour. Like, I just want to know what you guys think of Hans Zimmer. You'd be interested in hearing more about, I guess, what we think of Hans Zimmer, or just kind of like how he, you know, puts together his music, so. Yeah. Anywho, uh, that's the the very rough prompt. I don't know. I d- before we kind of before I go into it, I guess like to hear sort of you know what came to mind when you first thought about doing something related to Hans Zimmer. Well, I mean, my first thought was that like I mean I love his soundtracks and I I love them for like all the like uh, guilty pleasure reasons. Like as a musician, like a lot of what he's doing, I'm listening and I'm like. Oh, okay. Like I get it. I get it. And it's kind of repetitive sometimes, but I'm like, but Mm -hmm. man, it works. It just works and works and works always. And it's like, if it ain't broke, (laughs) don't fix it, man. You know, (laughs) just keep giving me the feels with all those swelling chords and, and, uh, repetitive motives that you stretch out. Like, and the more I listened to the things Mm -hmm. this week, I was like, oh yeah, he just, he's doing that same trick again, but, oh man, it just, it's exactly what you need, you know? (laughs) Like, so yeah, he. Um, I think he he likes to do that a lot. He'll pick a sort of motif or like a character for just all of the soundtrack in general, and then he will find ways to kind of distort and push and pull that through each of the different tracks. It's mm-hmm. pretty cool. Yeah, which is obviously a, a you know a method of a lot of composers throughout history. Um, so we should you know give him a little bit of props for that, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, I took uh, as a quick pause. Um, Nick and I, uh, one of our favorite classes in college was just the Music One Hundred and One History of Music, and it was like mm, a little bit of world music, but mostly Western music, and starting from very kind of primitive, early like organum and basic music, quote unquote, to contemporary music and then jazz and rock and roll it's really cool um one of the things you know those sort of vocabulary words that you learn is a motif or light motif um so i wanted to know if you uh had a a few words to kind of explain that um from what you understand to the listener well yeah i mean a motif is like um any identifiable fragment of music so like right now, you might be able to hear this in the background. My partner is playing 
Yep, I recognize that. And of course, that that small fragment, that right? That's a repetitive motive. It's the same thing happening, and it kind of moves around a little bit. But it's the da da dum part. That's the motif, right? So, um, this is a common thing, uh, obviously, in music, and people play with motives and and. Um, stretch them out so you might have like da da dum later and that's like a stretching mm-hmm. out or dum 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 right which would be even more stretched out of that same motive so mm. um that's how composers play around with the motives and a light motif which you mentioned um mm. yeah man, what, what's the difference with that i'm gonna be i'm gonna feel real silly if i get this wrong but i'm pretty sure <laughs> it's uh, a thing that wagner created in mm-hmm. his um, Gestamtkunstwerks, which are complete, <laughs> the complete uh, musical experience things that he tried to create, which were like operas that, you know, took place like there could be like super long and you can actually still go see them in Vienna, Vienna. Yeah, somewhere Austria, in Vienna, Austria, Austria. maybe in Germany. I think I don't know one of those. And they're like there's like a 10 year waiting list to see them. But they're like, you know, some of them are like 10 hour long operas. Wow. Uh, sorry, my dog's here and he's got he's making some noise. Hey, doggy. Yeah. We welcome all animals on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So it's Animal Crossing. <laughs> um, so anyway, I was saying about leitmotifs. So he came up with this concept and it's been obviously used a lot by uh, composers for film of hmm. a motive signaling a character in, a, in uh, an opera. Okay. So um, where a motif could just be like a uh, a molecule of notes that can be re- reused throughout a piece, the leitmotif is specifically oriented around a character? Or like the ring in Lord of the Rings or something. Right, Bodhi, stop that. Stop that. <laughs> Come on. Okay. Um, so one of the reasons for this, I think, again, I'm, I'm kind of going off memory from like 10 to 15 years ago, so bear with me. But Bodhi, no. <laughs> <laughs> sorry this is we, might have, we have to take a pause if this gets much worse here um but anyways people were really far away and they might not be able to see that a ring was being held up or a goblet was being held up but they'd hear the music and they would know it was that thing because the music was telling them oh. that thing, or they know it was that character because here comes the hero's theme or whatever so it's a really useful tool for telling storytelling to a mass audience where they maybe can't interesting see well. they don't have close-up cameras you know and that translates day. a lot into film, even though exactly. you can usually see the character, mm-hmm. um, they still use it to kind of, I guess, paint, you know, just paint the, the, the bigger picture, the, the immersive context of, oh, the bad guy's on the scene now, so let's play the bad guy tune, and here's the good guy, so let's reinforce the excitement of good guy with good right. guy music. <laughs> exactly. And sometimes what you'll notice is, you know, like there's a lot of things you can communicate in a soundtrack. You can communicate the setting as we kind of talked about with the Revenant, right? It's oh, a lot right, of yeah. setting communication. Um, you can communicate a character, you can communicate an emotion. Um, and sometimes what happens is when a character enters, I've noticed that the, the same theme that was going on that was kind of providing action is still there, but it's now like tainted with the character's motive also. So it's like the mm. character is coloring the scene now. Um, and that could be in a positive way or a negative way, you know? Um, interesting. Yeah. 
So some things to think about. Now, I'm not sure that all of these necessarily fall strictly into that. Um, I know I listened, I did a deep dive on Inception and Interstellar, and I know you mm-hmm. did, uh, what, Batman and Sherlock? Right? Yeah. Um, based on the stuff I heard in the master class. Right. Um, so, yeah, I was just going to add that I took this master class on Hans Zimmer for composing for film, and the, the whole thing was really geared towards film and how you work with directors and writers and whatnot. Um, so assuming you are a composer, a musician, how to have conversations with these other creators to get your vision across or to understand their vision. There's a lot of that. But when he did get into some of the specifics of his music style, he definitely hammered in really heavily um, his use of motif. Um, so it makes total sense your explanation of like Wagner and the light motif using it for a character. Um, thinking back on some of his lessons, that's exactly what he was doing. So he used Sherlock as a recognizable example, um, and also how he wanted to um, take the music in a different direction. And we can get into this a little bit later, but just to kind of tee things up, um, you know, that's an example where there's been a ton of Sherlock movies and TV shows. He, um, his lessons are really focused around understanding the character. Talk to your director because they own the character and really understand who is this person. And when you have a clear understanding of who that person is, it will help drive the music. And it seems like all the pieces in the soundtrack really kind of start to orbit, you know, like in a solar system around the motif that he has set for the main character and, you know, maybe counterbalanced with the the primary bad guy mm-hmm. uh, antagonist. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think that, that the way you put that orbiting is a really good uh, good way because as I listen to some through some of his soundtracks, like you really kind of hear, um, I mean, things keep getting pulled back to that main theme almost almost in every track. You know, there's like some reference to it. And you really do get the feeling even of orbiting, even when it's like, oh, this is like one of those tracks that's like completely stands out from the rest. Like sometimes mm-hmm. you'll notice those like, oh, they're going in a completely different direction here. Um, there's still like moments where it's like, oh, but there's a callback, you know, to that to that main thing. I mean, it's just reminding you this still exists in the world of of that of uh, the main character, the main motif. So, yeah. yeah and cool. he um I guess we can we can dive into some examples and and start talking about it uh, before we spend too much preamble, but I, I I wanted to we've talked a little bit you know off of the podcast about him and uh, there might be some more interesting things to share just in general. Um, he <clears throat> I don't have a full bio pulled up in front of me or anything, but from his master class he talked about how he never went. Uh, to school for music. He didn't go to conservatory or university or anything like that. Um, He did grow up with some kind of weird uh, parents who didn't let him have a TV, so he had a ton of records at home. And um, they didn't let him see movies, and so as a kid he would sneak out sometimes and and go to uh, see a movie. And he became quickly enamored with, I think it was Ennio Morricone um, uh, music set to the movies that he was seeing at that time. And he mm-hmm. felt like, oh, that's that's what I want to do. He didn't quite know how to get there, but that planted the seed for him. Uh, so from the beginning, it, it's not like he was a you know concert pianist and then ended up becoming a composer and then got a job working for a studio. He really, from the beginning, was kind of awestruck by using music to enhance the movie. 
um, which I think is pretty cool. And he also encourages people, even if he has a lot of interns that come in from, you know, really prestigious universities and music schools, he encourages them to push themselves and do stuff that's different and non-traditional. And when he seeks out his performers, he'll often ask them, um, you know, what is what is the sound on your, like let's say he's talking to a clarinetist, what is the sound on your clarinet that you've always been told to never make? <laughs> and can you make that sound for me? Yeah. And, or, yeah, or what is this, you know, kind of unique sound that, that you feel you might have or... Um, and he kind of uses that as the starting point. And um, he told a separate story about uh, this cellist. I wish I could remember which soundtrack it was related to. But um, he, he brought her in not because of the cello. And a lot of people think of the cello as this beautiful, we kind of talked about this before, very human kind of soulful sound. But he brought this performer in because of how she can be when she is playing the cello. What I do to this day, I mean, you know, Sherlock is a really good example of this, where I would get, I would cast my player, partly because I've heard them before and partly because of who I know they are, you know, um, as a human being, as an actor. And I, and I would just get them in. I would, uh, you know, we would just sit and chat with the instrument and go, okay, tell me what you can do. But, you know, no, 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 I want a bit more, you know, what what is it the instrument we did this a lot on interstellar um, with the woodwinds going now the, i know each one of you has a sound that every uh, that that you were never allowed to play what is that sound and you just enter into the conversation i mean on this last batman and superman film i needed to find a sound for wonder woman um, you know, and at first I went the obvious route, which was, you know, like a female voice. And I went, oh, God, I've done that a thousand times, you know, so so that's not it. And then I suddenly remembered a female cellist friend of mine, Tina Guo, who plays electric cello. And she is, when she comes into the room, she's one of the most polite and humble and quiet people you know very reserved, very shy. But when she grabs the cello, she has a certain way of grabbing the cello and moving the bow in front of it. It's like some ninja warrior princess and all hell is unleashed. Because because people are different when they have their instruments in front of them. You know, the, 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 they can express something that they keep hidden from you. and. The whole point, the whole point of this room, the whole point of what I what I try to do with them is I try to trick them into the comfort of expressing all that they can express. And with Tina, I mean, literally, it, we, we spend a week on this phrase, just honing this, honing the performance of this. And I I remember the first time playing it to the director and his producer wife. You know, they were sitting on on the couch and. Without saying anything, I you know just had the picture running, and then then that phrase came in. And...
was a physical shock to them in, in a good way. It made them nervous. It made them anxious. It made them really excited because, you know, I, I, I transformed the character. But it was, it was really stopping this idea that you want to have a cello. I don't want to have a cello. I want Tina Guo. That's who I want. And I do that with, with all of my players. I need to know, you know, I, I, it's not the string section. If, if you think of it as the string section, you, you know, you might as well go into the fields and hire a bunch of sheep. That's not the point. The point is that you want to handpick every individual player for their strength. Um, so it's not necessarily like, obviously, you know, you think of some common sounds like, oh, French horns and stuff for Hans Zimmer, mm -hmm. but, um, he, he does try to create those aesthetics, but it's really, it seems like it's more people first, which I had never even thought about. I just thought about like, oh, you just get the London Symphony Orchestra <laughs> in here and give them the sheet music and they'll make it beautiful. A little flavor of who Hans Zimmer is as a composer I, you know, maybe other people thought this too. I just kind of hear his soundtrack and think large grand orchestra. And I think, oh, he's a probably traditional conservatory mm -hmm. type of person. Um, but actually, um, you know, he's all of what I just described. And he's a, a synth lover. He loves synthesizers and experimenting with sounds. He, he will spend hours uh, in a day just tweaking with little effects in his software to get a particular unique uh, sound on a synthesizer. Yeah. Um, so there's little context. <laughs> yeah. I'll say, you know, that, that follows a, a big contemporary music trend. And I shouldn't say contemporary music. I'm sure it was probably this way in uh, more classical period stuff too. But like um, composers now, a lot of times are really writing for specific people. You know, they might write like a, string quartet oh really but, but they're being commissioned by that string quartet and so they usually get to know them pretty well and they're and they try to become familiar with the way they play so that when they write something for them it's like fits their personality and i know that i, mm. I worked for eighth blackbird for a while which is a contemporary music sextet that has won several grammys and they when they have something written sometimes the stuff has come in where the parts don't say like flute clarinet cello piano percussion they say like Natalie, Yvonne, Michael, you know, the parts oh, just really? say their names, <laughs> you know, and I thought that, you know, it's like kind of speaks to that, that you're talking about, like they're written for people more than they're written. I for. didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. And That's I mean, you know, like, I'm not saying every it, composer it is sense. that way, but like, I think some of the, some good music comes out that way because people are really, they invest in a person, they know a person and they, and they learn what they can do as a person. It's something we've actually, my group has talked about with some composers before, like, I'd rather you get to know me as a person and what I am capable of because it might inform you to do something completely like different, even outside of extra mm -hmm. musical, you know, like just knowing for instance that like I do like weightlifting or something might make you think of me doing something particularly interesting in percussion to make a huge sound. Right. Or, I mean, it, mm -hmm. it can go for a lot of different things. Like what are you good at? Like what are you as a person good at and how can you use that as an artist? I think that's a really important question yeah. to ask. That's, but that's interesting to know, and I'm sure, you know, just kind of putting on our host hats, mm -hmm. uh, the people listening to this are probably not aware of that either. 
Um, I had always, you know, when I think of composing music, I think of the sheet music I played on piano, Bach or Chopin, a hundred years old. And I just kind of assumed that, okay, yeah, if you're a composer, you're making new music, but you're still like, you know, an author writing a book. They're not writing a letter to a person. They're writing a book for everybody to read. I kind of always thought of music composition as, you know, you're writing something for a violin, Mm -hmm. for a flute. Um, doesn't matter who plays it. Hopefully they're good at it. (laughs) So it's, it was interesting for me to learn. Now with contemporary music too, like people aren't learning the same skills. So like, you know, there, there's like a classical school of how to play the flute or how to play the violin. But when it comes to contemporary music, a lot of that's like completely blown out of the water. So it kind of really depends on the very training you might've had, whether or not you do know how to do some techniques. Like they may just not even be something that you learn, um, in school. So Hmm. you, yeah, it's kind of hard just to write for violin anymore or just for a specific instrument because you don't know for sure unless you're certain that that person has learned X technique or whatever, you know. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, well, what should we start with, Rob? Um, let's do some, uh, some Inception, Inception, I think. That'd be really okay. cool. Cool. So we just listened to, um, it's called Dream is Collapsing from the uh, Inception soundtrack, uh, in case you want to follow along at home. Definitely feels like your dream is collapsing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, some of the things I love about this track, and I, I noticed this is actually you know a common theme in, in Hans's soundtracks, but... Hans, as if I know him. Hans. My buddy Hans. Uh, Hans Zimmer's soundtracks uh, are that he does these like really effective layering things, right? Where there's like one thing going on and then it brings in another motif on top of it. Mm. Um, and then a third one and then a fourth one, right? It keeps building. He builds the pressure through that sort of, right? And um, But in this particular case, I think what is... Uh, so effective about it is that if you know anything about the movie Inception, right, they're going through these layers, right? They go to one dream and then they go from that dream, they go a dream within a dream and they go even deeper than that. Um, and so what's interesting about this and this part, the part of the movie this comes from, at least I'm pretty sure they don't do the soundtracks in the order of the movie. Um, but I'm pretty sure that this one is the one, um, the very first dream that they're in and they're in a dream within a dream. And so you hear these different, things happening like the da dum bum 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 ba dum bum like moving at that speed right so you've got something moving at about this fast and then behind that you've got ba ba right <laughs> these like slower things mm-hmm. moving Um, and then even slower ones like duh. 
right? So there's like these different layers of time, different time scales. Place. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that comes back in a lot in this, as it should. You know, a movie that deals so much with time. But I think he does so good. Uh, so he does so good. He <laughs> so does good. such a nice. <laughs> he does such a nice job. Um, like sort of reminding you about the different levels by doing that. Like you things kind of peek out of the texture like oh remember that fast thing still going on but now we're in the slower mm. part and i don't know it just it feels like it's stretching itself in both directions like it's moving faster and slower at the same time somehow right like he'll the you hear the higher notes are the little bit faster ones like the strings you hear but then you have the big low brass and they kind of equally draw your attention because they're in these like two different uh sound um, I don't know, palettes. So right, um, and then the even cooler thing happens at the end of this track, where um, and this is like the coup de gras, really, of the whole Inception soundtrack. I think um, you'll have to put a jump cut here, Rob, mm-hmm. to Edith Piaf, and you can maybe even put it in the show notes. Edith Piaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a piece called. It's written in French. I'm gonna butcher it, but it's like Je ne regrette rien, which means. Uh, oh wait. I forget what it means. Doesn't <laughs> That's matter. It's no good. But anyway, <laughs> it's the, it's a song that they're listening to in their headphones. Um, it goes like bum 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 bum. Right. That's like the the melody of it. Mm-hmm. So you can put a little jump cut of it in there, and people will hear what it sounds like. But what makes it so awesome is that these people are in a dream, right? And they have this music on their headphones. Mm-hmm. You'll hear it at some point in the in the movie. They they loosen the headphones, and you hear that. So you know they're listening to it. And then when they're in the dream, it comes out as this, instead of going bum, 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 like it does in the actual song, it goes... Bum, 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 And that's like the call. That's the music they're hearing. So it's like it's actually kind of in the dream. But it's kind of like stretched out because their consciousness is in a different place. Exactly. Exactly. so cool. They say something about like at some point in the movie that like five minutes in the real world is like an hour in the dream. Now, I don't think that the actual mathematics works out in the way he, you know, did the music. But like it's the the thought of it that counts, right? (laughs) Yeah. And 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 that speaks to what I was describing earlier where he really does his homework in the sense of talking to the director and understanding, you know, like what Chris Nolan wants from this and what or what his dream world really is and then you know exactly. applying his music image to that exactly okay you want to hear another track yeah let's do it okay this is dream within a dream all right follow along at home kids
very cool. I yeah. I, I liked um, the, the one thing that kind of stuck out to me was maybe like 75, 80% through the track. Um, you hear him introduce uh, synthesizers, which I thought was pretty cool. And, um, you know, I never really, maybe just wasn't paying attention, but I never really thought of Hans Zimmer as a guy doing electronic music. Um, until I watched his master class and like that's his his native instrument is basically synthesizers um, and uh, so yeah it's kind of interesting to hear how he sneaks it in there and it's it's tied very closely to this electric guitar so you don't really notice it at first but um, yeah mm-hmm. it was interesting yeah I mean I would guess that in a lot of his soundtracks there are at least half half parts uh electronic and half parts acoustic i mean there's a lot Mm -hmm. more in this soundtrack going on with electronic and it just kind of has some acoustic instruments plugged into it okay more or less i'm even wondering you know some of these it's kind of hard to tell if they're actual string recordings or if they're just synthesized strings i mean so because he's doing tricks to them it's kind of hard to tell so on on that note he did say he first of all he he finds his like favorite cellist or favorite you know instrument Mm -hmm. players and he will ask to sample them. So people mm-hmm. who don't know what sampling is, it's like this painful process, I'm sure, I can only imagine, <laughs> of having someone play every note on their instrument, probably a couple different ways. And you take that and you chop it up and you feed it to a computer. So when you hit you know, D sharp on your computer keyboard, uh, it will play back what that person played on their instrument. And um, so he... Yeah. he samples his favorite performers because he wants to have their sound but he always gets them to perform it you know um Mm -hmm. in the real basically um oh that's good to know yeah so he never if you hear acoustic instruments it is always a performer okay yeah well that's good yeah Yeah. that's great he'll he'll, he will write with samples all the way up to Mm -hmm. you know the point that he's done and that helps him get the shape that he wants but then when it goes into recording um it's always real people yeah it's the people yeah yeah so uh with that uh track it had you know some of the same techniques we talked about from the first one right there's a lot of the layering the time things going on you can hit the different levels but what's especially interesting about this one i think um well there's a couple of things the first this one has like a lot more percussion in it than the first track i uh, listened uh, yeah. to and it starts with some really fast percussion, but then that percussion kind of comes back later as they've gone into the second dream, right? Or into the deeper dream mm-hmm. in a really slow way. So at first it's kind of like, it's like kind of like 16th note like ticket, 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 like fast. Uh-huh. And then later it comes back, it's just like, it's like really like slow and like echoey and. Um, so that's, it's interesting. He introduces that texture, but he still treats it the same way. Um, and then the other thing I found interesting that kind of, he's playing with time again, is he introduces what's called polyrhythms. That's what I heard where you're playing. (laughs) I was going to ask you, I was like, it feels like there's this slightly incongruous, like gears moving. Yeah. And so, um, for the listeners there, a polyrhythm um, is where you, it's what you might guess is two rhythms going on, at least two rhythms going on at the same time. So in the space that I had, yeah, I'm going to use a metronome. Actually, that'll make this real nice. <laughs> okay. 
So here's my metronome. It's playing at 80 beats per minute. So 80 times it's going to beat in a single minute. Let's get a nicer sound than that. That's pretty painful. Okay, there we go. So I can subdivide this beat into two parts, which would be like one and two and three and mm -hmm. four and. I can substitute in the three or subdivide into three parts. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, or four parts. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. But I can also do multiples of those at the same time. Um, so if I do that with like, let's say eighth notes and triplets, I have my eighth notes over here in my left hand. And then I add the triplets on top. I'm going to get. So I have yep. one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one. Oh, I've messed that up. One, two, three, <laughs> one, two, three, one, two, three. I was doing that completely wrong. There we go. That's the right one. Okay. You can just edit all that out if you want, Rob. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, so was, I, I was prepared one, two, to be three, one, impressed because I've never been able to overlap the triplets and the chord. Yeah. yeah. Now, what led me to do that wrong the first time is because the one he's using in this actual piece yeah. is to do what I was doing. The... And then... Right, so they're happening at the same time. And it creates this feeling of two separate timelines, right? Like one thing is moving like this fast and the other thing is going like around it, almost like dancing circles around it oh. as it goes on. You know what I mean? So that's, that's another technique he used. And I just, so that's, I, that's me getting to look like a terrible musician, <laughs> but you can leave that in. I don't mind if you leave it in, uh, but that kind of hopefully explains how polyrhythms work and he uses them really effectively. That's, yeah, that's really interesting in, in terms of tempo itself not to get too technical, but in his masterclass, he says that he, he really likes 80 uh, BPM or 80 tempo um, because it's very easy to subdivide. Um, and also he was going on some tangent. I'm going to butcher it, but it was something to do with fitting sort of the natural rhythm of, um, of what's going on in the screen. Um, just, I don't know, events, movements kind of easily uh, fit that mm -hmm. type of pace. And he often does try to fit um, his tempo and the the feeling of the music to what's going on um, on screen. He doesn't necessarily write. It's more of a coincidence. He doesn't have the movie. Um, this is another thing he kind of went into. He doesn't ever have like, here's a silent version of the movie and he's playing it on a monitor while he composes. Usually he starts at the same time everyone else starts. And um, so he's he's working without anything to look at. But um, yeah. he knows the director, usually, you know, he works with similar directors all the time and uh, the music editors and all that. So he kind of has a feeling for how they're going to pace out a scene. And so that's, he has some kind of default settings himself that line up well with what's going on on the screen. Yeah, well, and what's convenient about that and the way he composes it, there's a lot of, like, loops almost that are continuously going, so he can always just, like, cut down the loop a little bit mm -hmm. or just chop it off there and compose a different little ending so that it fits in the scene. So I'm sure that that's, that's really helpful and efficient yeah. <laughs> for him. 
Okay, I got one more from this, but it's just for one particular thing. Okay. So, um, well, it's only it's three minutes long. It's called Paradox. It's the last one we'll do from Inception. All right. It reminded me of something that that he said uh, jokingly that he likes to torture his performers, um, and he's <laughs> saying how like if you're playing on a stringed instrument, do you realize how hard it is to play so quiet and very long notes? <laughs> kind of made yes. me think of what what we're hearing here. Yeah, so I mean, on that note, that is that is one great thing about this particular track. You can, in fact, in the beginning of the very beginning there with the violin. Um, it's, it must be super close mic'd because you can hear mm. the, the bow noise, the, the, no, the noise of the bow on the string, the contact noise. Mm-hmm. So not just the resultant pitch, but the little like hissing of the bow. Yeah. Uh, which I think is really, I mean, it's really, it kind of, I'm not sure how that relates exactly to the, you know, the movie, but that's just like such a cool effect. It's like a lot of, it's so delicate feeling when you can hear that. Like, it sounds like it's just going to snap or something. It at any does. Moment. Yeah. It feels like you're. Yeah. Like if you ever have like a long piece of hair or something, and you like you feel like a like when you pull, just like it's so thin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what were you the, looking the, for though? It, what, the thing, do you remember? The thing, I thought it was in this track, but maybe maybe it's in another track. But there's these risings rises that happen. Okay, yeah, that is it. Okay, sorry, I just figured it out. Okay, so it is that. So what happens is it goes up four, Mm -hmm. and then it goes down eight. So Uh. it goes... And then it leaves the space, because it has four up, four down, and then four space. And then four up, four down, four space. So it's doing the same bum, bum, like bum, Mm -hmm. bumped, bum, bumped. It's the same ratio as the fast bum 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 thing it's just taken down even another level interesting <laughs> i can try to say that nicer if you want to actually put it in the pot <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you mean it leaves the space so okay so that the the main theme the main idea is right one two rest one two rest one two rest one two rest right mm-hmm. bump 
bump, bump, press, bump, bump, press, like that, okay? And then when it gets taken down a level, it's bum, bum, rest, bum, bum, rest. Mm -hmm. And here it's one, two, three, four, one, two, One, two, three, four, one. So it's four counts up, on uh, four counts on the second one, and then a four count space, which would make it the same ratio. Mm-hmm. One, one, rest. One, one, wow. rest. Wow. So, yeah. I know. It's I crazy. think that's, you know, I, and it, I, it took me a while to figure out what the, how to count that, right? You heard me count against yeah. you. are probably like, what? That's the tempo? And I'm guessing that's one way to hear the tempo, but I could at least put the same amount of space between the things which is, i thought about timing it with a stopwatch but i didn't get around to it <laughs> yeah anyway so there's probably some part of that you can put in the pod that that sounds good yep um and maybe you can find that spot i'm just not going to um, edit any of this and people will be totally confused <laughs> <laughs> or they'll think i'm an idiot yeah <laughs> so so yeah that's what i got for inception i mean obviously there's a lot more cool stuff in it um you know, there's a part where they're in mm-hmm. Kinshasa, uh, they're in Mombasa, and they're doing a chase scene. That's really. I cool, was gonna say there's a bunch of percussion just... there. I'm surprised you didn't go with the percussion track. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of run-of-the-mill, like, you know, use percussion for a chase scene. So I wasn't, like, particularly drawn to it as much as I was this exact, like, that motif that goes deeper and deeper and deeper. I just think, you know, this movie, we've said before, like, maybe we've said before, maybe I was talking to somebody else. But, like, I think it was either Siskel or Ebert said, like, it's the first, like, truly original movie he had seen in, like, Mm. a long time. Like, original concept. Like, it doesn't borrow from any previous concept. It's just, like, completely original. And I really feel like Zimmer matched that with his soundtrack, having this, like... I mean, to use time in that way in music and match the movie, I'm like, I've never heard anything like that. I had never heard anything like that before this, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Man, I gotta watch this movie again now. I mean, it was good. It was good. It holds up, too. I just... I, I, I don't often go back and watch old movies, but um, this one seems worth it. If it's if it's like a favorite, then I'll go back and watch it. Like 2001 Space Odyssey. Of course. Always leaves me kind of scratching my head, and the music is beautiful. So I, I'll watch that maybe once a year or so. Um, yeah. yeah. What I love about, I mean, this movie in general is that it doesn't, it goes just deep enough into things without going like, it doesn't need like its own canon mm-hmm. in order to make sense. Like you don't have to understand all of the particulars about how they're going into dreams. They just give you enough to get by. And I think that's like to do that and have such a good movie overall, like only giving you that much information, like I think is hard to do. Right. Cause now we have like star Wars and star Trek and there's like literally wikis set up yep. that tell you all about the universe of those things. Right. And that's what makes those things good. In my opinion, it's just the depth. Yeah. But this one, it seems to like, I mean, I know people have pointed out plot holes in it and stuff, but it, when you're just watching it casually, you don't definitely don't notice any plot holes. Um, at least I don't. Mm-hmm. And, and instead, you're like drawn to these concepts that make sense. And I think the, the soundtrack is such a big part in helping you process 
the going deeper into dreams and like and and having you believe it you know because you feel yeah. like you're going deeper and deeper and deeper so yeah that's anyway. that's definitely interesting um to draw a circle around what we were talking about at the beginning with motifs and light motifs um there's definitely you know like a I would call it like a theme um, that you get in paradox and in time. Um, did you did you happen to notice? I don't know while you're watching or whatever. Any particular like character themes? Um, not particularly. I was not it's drawn more to any, and and I kind of feel like that's because the in the movie there actually aren't any strong characters in this movie. Everybody is kind of a vanilla character. Like, if I was to put, like, the importance, like, you know, there's all the elements of a movie or a play or whatever. Like, there's, like, the setting and there's, like, the the mood, I would even say. And then there's, like, the characters. Um, what else? I mean, there's, I guess, the, the actual text and the plot. Like, for this movie, the characters, like, they could almost have been played by anybody, I feel like. As mm-hmm. long as they were, like, decent, like, decent actors. It was so much more about the plot and the concept to make it work. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't think it, it didn't really demand a strong acting performance from anyone. It's definitely not a and... memorable performance. <laughs> I will say that. No, and like, you, I don't you even don't remember like who's the main character. What was their problem? You know, there's like conflict solution. All I remember is batshit trippy dream scenes, people chasing them with a gun <laughs> and like, are you really awake or is it another dream? And you know, yeah. just the whole, the concept of the movie. I don't really remember like, Oh, so-and-so main character, um, or a, or a focused, like bad enemy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we talked about this before with like Ad Astra, like that movie was, had like a really bad plot. <laughs> Yep. But it was like the mood of it was really good. Like it, it was like, oh, this is like kind of interesting to imagine what it feels like to live in a world where we travel through space this way and like how it's a bit like a lot colder and kind of like impersonal. Um, yeah. It no longer feels very human. And for this one, I think like, you know, the the characters like there's no real I mean, there's no real character development in the whole thing like everyone's a static character pretty much the whole time um even and the plot itself is actually just like well like leo dicaprio's character needs to do this one big job so that he can get cleared of these like uh like uh, presumed murder charges and get back to the united states mm. but i only remember that because i just watched it uh-huh. <laughs> no i totally forgot about that part yeah all i remember is like what you said it's more about the the concept the setting of the movie or the way the world in which it exists yep. that makes it memorable folding um, in yeah yeah cool exactly exactly so yeah inception well go check it out speaking of outer space that was your other one um yeah we could we could listen i mean i have time if you want to listen to a few we can or if you want to take a break we can cut it and do a part two yeah that took a lot longer than i thought yeah so maybe let's do a part two this might be a trilogy because um, I got to get to uh, Sherlock right. and yeah and Batman, but I think um, you know. So if you're, uh, I think that the interesting takeaways if you if you don't go to part two and three that we haven't made yet, um, I think it's it's definitely my my sort of conclusions for Hans Zimmer is that he is very story driven and he he lives to 
paint the scenery and draw draw the character and you know maybe like you said with it, with this not interstellar <laughs> with uh, inception it wasn't very character focused like of course every story has to have characters but maybe it is more just about this concept and it seems to be that's where uh hans put his time and effort as well yeah and that's like the, most of the thematic material comes from this other song this edith piaf song um like I, I think anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, like this goes to show you he had to like outsource like something to use for it to have content to work with because there wasn't like any strong thing he could develop on his own. I mean, that's not to say anything bad about him. I just think that's or maybe Christopher Nolan was like, all right, the characters are going to be listening to this, and so <laughs> yeah. so he's like, okay, well, I've got to use that now as the seed for everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think Interstellar. I don't know how I'd classify. That movie, if it was more um, character-driven or atmospheric, it was extremely atmospheric. I mm-hmm. paid for this the 4K version of this movie on Apple TV. Mm. I own I own two movies in 4K. I generally don't bother buying movies, but mm-hmm. I have 2001: Space Odyssey and I have Interstellar. Um, yeah, just because. You know, space is beautiful, and these uh, these two movies did a really good job representing space, and uh, and also scenes on the planet and stuff. So anyway, it's to me, it's very yeah. environmental. It's about the feeling of being way far away from home. It is obviously mm-hmm. a character based story because you have father and daughter kind of thing going on. Um, but yeah, I don't know where I land on that if it. I haven't listened to the soundtrack in a while, so we'll talk about this in the next episode. But I'm kind of curious where it falls in terms of leitmotif, the characters drawing the the music, or if it's more about trying to give you that that feeling of of danger or isolation, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about that in the next pod. I think that's good. Sounds good. All right. Well, until next time, I'll stop recording. All right. <laughs> Bye everyone. Non, rien de rien. Non, je ne regrette rien. Ni le bien.